Welcome to the Woodridge Baptist Church Podcast. For more information about what's happening in the life of our church, visit our website at www.woodridge.org. Enjoy the podcast. We've been in this series on prayer and talking about things that literally quench and kill the power of our prayer life with God. A number of those things, and reclaiming it. We want to reclaim it. Some of the things that will, will block the flow of the power of our prayer life with God is sin. We know that. It just kind of creates a space between us and God that isn't meant to be there. And sometimes the first thing that we have to reclaim in our prayer life is just going back to God and saying, hey, I've created some space here and I want, I want it back. Sometimes we just need to confess. One of the other things that we know that can literally hinder the, the power of our prayer life is not just sin, but it's distraction. And for some of us, as we talked about last week, we need to find a place of solitude. We need to get to a place of quiet again. Sometimes we're not hearing God, not because God isn't speaking, because frankly, we're just not listening. We have so packed our schedule with things uh, that we wouldn't recognize the voice of God even if he was speaking to us anymore. And I wanna continue on that theme this morning because we learned something from the life of Jesus because Jesus found a quiet place and we need to find a quiet place. I wanna remind you of something from scripture. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except through me in John 14, six. But did you notice that one of the things that he said about himself is that he is a way. He's the way. There's a literal path of life that he wants you to walk. Not just a series of things that you think about or people that you associate with. And th- those are all good things. Hobbies that you have, there's no problem with that. But he says, there's a way of life for you. And it's one that if you literally follow me, it's gonna bring you peace. And if you don't follow me, it's going to bring you chaos and discord. Tom Rayner was talking some years ago. I was a part of a thing with a bunch of pastors. And he made this recommendation. He said, I'm talking to you, us pastors. He said, I want you to find every year, I want you to take at least two straight weeks off off, two straight weeks off, back-to-back weeks. I thought that was interesting for him to say because right off the bat, I thought, are you nuts? I mean, do you know how much I would have to do when I got back? It wouldn't even be worth the break. But here was, here was why he said to do it. He said, because honestly, for the first week, you can't shut it down. He said, if you, if you stop one week and you go, I'm just gonna take a week off, you're still gonna have to sermon prep for that week because you're back up the next Sunday. How much of a break is that? It's none. He said, the other thing is, is that you're constantly there, you know, leading, listening to people, leading people, walking with people through really difficult times. And you can't just turn it off. We don't work like that. It's still resonating in your head. He said, here's the thing. It can take at least one full week for you to get past that so that you can get to a place where you go, hey, let's have some fun. One full week. Now, that was, he said that probably a decade ago, and I still haven't done it. <laughs> I mean, just shooting straight with you people. It was like, that's great advice. Anywho. But how many, how many of you, I have the same rep. That's great advice, Jesus. I should walk that way. Anywho. And we get right on with it. See, we've been discussing prayer, and we've noticed that sin and distraction are able to strip away the power of prayer in our lives. I want you to reclaim it this morning. Uh, let me talk a little bit about, about removing distraction. There was an article in the Washington Post came out in, 20, uh, in 2021. During the pandemic, this is what they reported. Many of us turned to smartphones and to screens to manage our stress. But as public life opens up again, some are looking for a different kind of escape, they said. Hmm. So they gave this example. There's a cafe in Seoul, Korea called the Green Lab. Patrons pay for time slots to simply sit and do nothing. I'm not making this up. They literally pay to do nothing. 
The green lab requires that no one is allowed to speak and all phones are turned off. Not muted, they're turned off. A large glass window looks out onto a green forest and diffusers around the cafe release pleasing aromas. And every day, the three time slots are completely booked. Here's what they went on to say. We, what we call zoning out in America, the Koreans call hitting mung. I wrote that up there for you just in case you couldn't hear me. Hitting mung, allowing their minds to be completely blank. And if there's nothing else that you remember from this morning, you're going to remember that, aren't you? You're going to walk around this week and use the phrase hitting mung. A customer in their early 30s, as they reported, said, I've been so tired, I don't even have time to space out. After work, I go home, I have to do housework, and then I barely have 30 minutes to an hour before I need to sleep. I spend that time on my phone. So with a space like this, I can actually focus on taking a break. Isn't that interesting? A business owner who goes into the the green lab said this, it makes space in my brain. I even read a book. I, I read that and I was like, uh... I even read a book. I enjoy the smell of the diffusers. I look at the flowers. I even had a chance, have a chance to write. But here's what he went on to say. I start, I start getting new ideas even, one by one, because I actually felt refreshed. How about that? Some of you have heard of Beethoven, famous musician and composer in 1801. Uh, at the age of 30, Beethoven uh, complained about his diminished hearing You probably know the story, but let me fill you in on some of it. Here's what he said. He said, from a distance, I I do not hear the high notes of the instruments and the singer's voices. There's a Harvard professor named Arthur Brooks. He said that Beethoven raged against his decline in hearing. To be able to hear his own playing, he banged on pianos so forcefully that he often would leave them totally wrecked. He beat them to pieces. And by the age of 45, he was completely deaf. He considered suicide, but he didn't because he said there's a moral rectitude to the situation and it's not the proper response to what I'm going through. But in terms of his hearing, he was cut off from the world that was around him. And at times, he held a pencil in his mouth against his piano's soundboard so that he could feel the harmony of the chords of what he was trying to compose. However, Beethoven produced the best music of his career culminating in his incomparable Ninth Symphony. Some said a composition so daringly new that it completely reinvented classical music altogether and he did it when he was stone deaf. So Arthur Brooks, who was writing about Beethoven, he said this, He said, it seems a mystery that Beethoven became more original and brilliant as a composer in inverse proportion to his ability to hear. Deafness freed Beethoven as a composer because he no longer had society's soundtrack in his ears. I remind you of something that I've said before, but I want to repeat to you this morning. James K. Smith was writing on our need to just kind of remove from the noise of the world. He said, because the world will shape your lovings and your longings. The average person is going to church about once a month, and I'm talking about the person that describes themselves as a follower of Christ. They're going to church about once a month. Think about that. 52 Sundays in a year, you're going to church once a month. I mean, what is one hour a month going to do for you when you have immersed yourself in the world? You don't even get God a chance 
with that kind of input and output. And so James K. Smith said, you need to surround yourself with something else that will shape your lovings and your longings in a better way and in a better light. Something that's going to be good for you and to starve out some of those other noises that you've just constantly fed your head with. Let me get back to Beethoven. Here's what Brooks said. He said, there are multiple lessons lurking in this tale. Most striking was the degree to which silence paradoxically allowed Beethoven to hear something new. In our current techno-cultural moment, we're constantly connected to a humming, online, hive mind of urgency. Sometimes there's long-term advantage in removing society's soundtrack from our ears. As Beethoven so vividly demonstrates, he said, we can't really hear ourselves until we're able to turn down the volume on everyone else. I would even throw this in there, you can't hear God until you turn the volume down on everything else that's around you. All of this changed, folks, in 2007, and you probably know what I'm talking about. You see these moments that are cultural moments that are hugely formative to us in our space, but that was when the smartphone came out. How many of you have yours with you today? That's right, I'm judging you right now. I'm kidding. There's nothing wrong with it, right? I mean, you find that you can communicate, you can connect in some good ways. The problem is, is that it's seemingly taken over our lives. And this was the point, 2007 became a tipping point. You have not just the iPhone coming out, but you have Twitter being launched. And this is what they've shown as our attention spans are literally dropping. Our, our, our ability to sit and focus and hold a line of thought is literally dropping. There was a study from Andrews University Here's what they said. Many elements factor into our ability to pay attention to something. We know that sleep, exercise, diet, and all that, they're important contributions to our brain health and consequently our mind's ability to focus on something. However, there could be other facets that play a role in today's concern regarding attention spans. How many of, I, how many of you already dropped out this morning? See, it just proves the point. Proves the point. Here's what he wanted to say. It seems that concentration has become increasingly difficult and intention spans are shortening. He went on to say this. How many of you heard something like this? I remember being told in middle school that my attention span was worse than that of a goldfish. Hold on. So according to a study, in the year 2000, people's attention spans were around 12 seconds. But in 2013, it was around eight seconds. Here's some science for you, children. A goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds. They beat us. <laughs> they beat us. How about, how about this? Even the way that television works. Even the way that television works. I've got a study up here for you, but in case you can't see this, basically what it's showing you is the amount of time that on a, the television show, that they would hold a frame, literally just hold a frame so that you could look and see and focus. Over the last 20 years, what you see is the time that they will hold a frame gets less and less and less and less. Now, what they want to do is you get an angle and boom, they change the angle and boom, and they change the angle and boom. They're not even holding a frame for a second. And what happens is, is this completely changes the way that your brain receives information. And we just sit here and soak it up. But what that also means is, is in a moment where we need to be quiet, we need to be in solitude, we need to be focused, we're not even there in a place where we could. All of the stuff that we're surrounding ourselves with, where we're immersing ourselves with, is having this effect. So, John Mark Comer said this. He said, it robs us of our ability to be present to other people, 
even to ourselves, but most importantly to God. We can't just be there because our mind just goes away. So I showed you the flying Walenda clip. Did y'all like that? That was pretty cool. Y'all wanna go do that together sometime? Let me, let me ask you a question. Did you see how much work it took him to stay balanced on the wire? See, here's what some of you walk around and think. See, if I just had balance, every, everything would be okay. But the important thing that the clip shows you is that the work is in creating the balance. Did you catch what I just said? You're just hoping that there would be balance in your life, but the work for your life is creating the balance for your life. For him, balance really mattered because if he slips, he drops 1,500 feet to his death. But did you know that if you're not careful and take control over the flow of your life and instead life is taking, care, taking control over the flow of you, you will lose balance. And the result of that is you become disconnected in your relationships with other people. You become disconnected from yourself. You don't even know who you are anymore. And you become disconnected from God. Balance matters. But the hard work of creating balance for you is in making choices in what it is that is feeding a distraction rather than your focus so that you can have the balance, so that your soul is being fed, so that you're not so frayed at the end that there's nothing left to you. You have to make the choices on identifying what that is and bringing yourself back in. One example that I gave last week is sometimes you can let the, the, basically the schedule of your kids, parents, you can let the schedule of your kids completely take over your life to the point that not only do you not have time for your marriage, I mean, remember, we have kids so that we can send them away. <laughs> you raise them to release them. This is biblical. They're like an arrow. Out you go. But you want to send them further than you are in life. This is from the Psalms. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But here's what we're also finding is one of the highest divorce rates is happening when the last kid leaves the home. Why is that? It's because then the husband looks at the wife and the wife looks at the husband and they go, I don't have a clue who you are anymore. Why? It's because they didn't know how to put a boundary on their kids and to give them a good no. You say yes to a lot of stuff, no problem there. But a good boundary on the things of your kids so that you can nourish your marriage. What kind of relationship are you possibly, what kind of marriage would you possibly have if you literally never spend time with each other? You don't know each other. And that's what the, the empty nesters were finding. They were looking at each other and going, I'm not even sure. <laughs> like, what do we do? Because everything was them. Everything was them. And it wasn't meant to be. You cultivate these relationships by the decisions that you make. And you hold things in a good form so that there's health and there's balance. We see this in the life of Jesus. Look at Luke chapter four, verses one through four. Jesus was a pretty busy dude, right? He was busy. Here's what Luke four says. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan, meaning river, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days. That's gotta be brutal. And at the end of them, he was hungry. I'm sure he was. The devil then said to him, if you're the son of God, tell the stone to become bread. And Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. That's kind of interesting. Notice that when he goes out to the wilderness, who was it that led Jesus out into the wilderness? It said the spirit led him out there. 
And what you would think is, is he's out in the wilderness. He has this time of prayer and fasting. You would think, man, I'm going to be depleted here because I haven't been eating. Perfect time for the enemy to come in and to attack me. And notice that the first thing that the enemy does is attack him at what would be perceived as the point of greatest weakness. Dude hadn't eaten in a long time. I'm throwing some chicken down. I don't know what he threw down, but he's like, tell these stones to turn into bread. And Jesus says, yeah, well, not everything in life is about bread, right? His, what you might would think would be his weakest moment because of everything that he's gone through was actually being led by the Spirit of God to a place of preparation for a time of temptation. He was ready for what showed up because we find our strength in the Lord who provides in the moment. Notice Notice this, because in Luke chapter 5, verses 15 and 16, you know Jesus was a busy dude. He was wildly popular, except for the people that hated him. And in verses 15 and 16, it says, yet the news about him was spreading all the more. Does that surprise you? <laughs> Does it surprise you? I mean, if you're doing miracles and things, it's probably going to capture a crowd. The news spread about him all the more so that crowds of people came to hear him and to be healed of their sickness. But Jesus, what does it say? Often withdrew to lonely places and he prayed. There was always more that Jesus could do, but you find him withdrawing and going and spending time with the Father. We're supposed to take a lesson from this. In Luke's gospel, at least 10 references describe Jesus withdrawing and going to a quiet place so that he could spend time with, with the Father. And the more famous and in demand he became, the more he would withdraw and go to a quiet place. He knew he needed it. Do you know that you need it? Remember, he said, I am the way. There's a path of life that will bring blessing. This is one of those paths. Even in Mark chapter 6, Jesus feeds the 5,000. You remember the story? That's a pretty big crowd. They feed the 5,000. They've been there to listen to him, to teach and everything. He gets done with the feeding of the 5,000. He looks at the disciples and he says, hey guys, why don't y'all go on ahead and go on into Bethsaida? I'm going to hang back here. So he's away from the crowd. He sends the disciples away. And then what did he do? After a pretty phenomenal moment, you got to admit, if you're there and you see the feeding of the 5,000, pretty amazing thing to witness, he goes and gets alone and he prays. But he knew that he had to get rid of the disciples to make that happen. Guys, y'all go on ahead. Go on ahead. So I want to give you some practical things this morning. We talked about this for, you know, a couple of weeks now on finding quiet for your life. A couple of things that I want you to write down for those of you that are note takers because we absolutely all need it. And I want to hold things in a good balance because I say this all along. Scripture is pretty awesome. You know, God creates and he says, enjoy this. That's a pretty good way to start, right? Here's food. Have your snacks. That's a great way to start in Genesis, right? Or here's your wife. I want you to enjoy her. That's a great way to start. But also to not let that be so much of a focus that he's no longer a part of our life. So how do we reclaim that? I want you to get some time back for yourself, finding quiet. I want to remind you, the Ten Commandments says that there's one day off each week. And when God gave the commandments, the Hebrews, they, had been work, they would work from sun up to sundown. And some of you are like, yeah, I'm like them. So you can see why Sabbath would be a gift. Hey, stop. It's like, just stop. One of the things I want you to remind yourself of this week and literally put into practice for your life is this. Here's the first, and Tim Keller is right on this. Take some time for sheer inactivity. Yes, I said that. Take some time for sheer 
inactivity. See, most people need some time every week that is unplanned and unstructured where you do whatever it is that you feel like doing. And I don't mean immoral things, don't do that. I'm just right, it just stops. I love this in scripture, there's a pause. There has to be a cessation of activity. It's gotta stop at some point. And for them, the Hebrews, the pause in the work cycle is like Israel's practice of letting a field light, what they called fallow. You see this in Leviticus chapter 25. They would work and then there would literally be a year where they were farmers, people, and then that whole year they would not touch the ground. Why is that? It's so that the nutrients could be poured back into the soil because if you keep working it, it drains it of all of its resources. And there's a principle for us here is that if you just keep working it, you're going to drain yourself of your resources. Find some space just for nothing that your life for about 30 minutes is like Seinfeld. It is the show about nothing. Is that is time for nothing. All right, y'all with me so far? You're finding quiet. So here you go. Here's the second thing. Find some time for what is called avocational activity. It's a big word, but it's not that big a deal. It just means what is it that you enjoy doing? What is it that you enjoy doing? Do you actually have a hobby that you're in? Now, some of you could probably hold a balance the other way too, like get back to work. (laughs) But a hobby that you're in, getting out and playing golf, working out, being with friends. Uh, The bottom line is, is that here's what it provides for you. This is the first thing. It provides for you contemplative rest and you need it. Prayer and worship, they're a critical part of Sabbath rest. You just stop. Regular time for devotion, regular time for reading scripture, listening to God. Literally, you just be quiet for a little bit. You listen to God for a while. Maybe you start to recognize the voice again because you've given him the space to speak back into your life rather than the noise of the world drowning him out. We need that. You do need recreational rest. The Puritans, some of the early Christians, were rightly skeptical of recreation and they they said anything that's demanding a ton of money out of you and a ton of time out of you and a ton of exertion out of you, but you're calling it a hobby, but at the end of your hobby, you're absolutely soul drained, rethink your hobby. Rethink your hobby. There's a better way of living life and finding a balance in it, but we also need what is called aesthetic rest. Let me tell you how I do it. I go out to the woods, I hunt, and sometimes little creatures will walk in front of me and I'm content just to let them go. Like, you know what? Today I just needed quiet. I just needed it to be quiet. But it's not just for it to be quiet, it's there is a beauty out there that if we are so busy, we completely miss it. God's world is an amazing world. So let's go get it. There's something else that I want you to factor into this, and I need you to raise your hands for this. How many of you, now this is, I might need to define it. How many of you are an introvert? Can I see your hands? And here's what I mean by that. You actually fuel back up by somewhat getting away from people, right? So it doesn't mean you don't love people. It doesn't mean that you're not socially graceful with people. It means that you get to a point where you go, I've had enough of people, and I just need to go and get away for a little. Can I see those hands for the introverts? Okay, now I'm gonna go to the other side. How many of you, you need to go to people so that you can get energized and kicked back up for life? You're called an extra, and you know them because they hoot and howl when you ask a question. (laughs) Extroverts, can I see your hands this morning? Be proud about it, it's fine. Okay, 
Now, it's a little bit hard for me to see because I have a lot of lights blasting in my eyeballs right now, but I think it was actually about half and half. You need to factor this in, that when you're talking about finding this time with God, we're actually cut a little bit differently. The point is, is that you need it. For some of you, you look, I've got small children. Finding time with God is gonna be difficult. That's true, but 10 minutes is better than none. Five minutes is better than none. I can always say that when we especially had little kids, I can tell you there were times where I would look at Wendy and say, you just go, I've got him. I've got him. She needed the space. By the way, so did I. So did I. She needed to be looking at me and saying, that dude's kind of getting to the end of it. He needs a break. Hey, I've got him. You can go. Some of this is very practical, but part of this is just knowing who you are. How it is that you, you have a life-giving activity. Here, here's another thing. Because I'm talking about Sabbath for your life, you're gonna need to inject it in. You're gonna need to inject it in. There, if you look in Leviticus 19, there are these laws that are called gleaning laws. I expect all of you to know what those are. But here's the idea, because they were farmers, right? They farmed back then. That's how they made it. But they would set the edge of their field and they would work the interior edge of their field. But the outside of the edge, that was still their property. There was still stuff that was growing out there. And the point for setting the edge was so that if a person that was hungry, they were poor and they were needy, they could come up and they could actually take of their produce and they would have some provision for them. So they would keep what was on the inside because they would trade right? They would barter with it. They would eat it. It was their means of provision. But the outside of the edge, it was to be set so that those that were in a time of need would be provided for. Now, here's the thing about gleaning and why I give it as an example for Sabbath is because it is the deliberate limitation of personal productivity. The person owned the land. They could have said, uh, excuse me, I'm the one that planted everything here. And so, yeah, I'm going to get all of it and I'm gonna do whatever I want with it because I own it. But God said, no, set a border and take care of other people. Notice that is putting a limit on personal productivity. Sabbath is going to put a limit on your personal productivity. And that's okay, because you need to. If Chick-fil-A can do it, you can too. I mean, how much do you think that they would make? Seriously, let's be honest with ourselves. How much do you think Chick-fil-A more would make if they opened up on a Sunday and ran it the whole day. For all of their stores all across the country, how much more money do you think that they would take in? But from its inception, what did they say? We're going to stop on Sunday so that you have the chance to be with your family and so that you can go and you can worship. They put a limit to personal productivity knowing that it was gonna come at a cost because it was best. And some of you need to do some Chick-fil-A in your life. Not because you, you process chicken, but because you haven't set a border in your life. You don't have any edges. Your soul is absolutely worn out. Full schedule, empty soul, and you're finding yourself coming to the end of yourself. We can take a lesson from the, the gleaning law and you just take a look and say, I'm gonna put a limit on productivity because what I get on the other side of it is so much more valuable than a little bit more. Let me, let me end with this. I love this saying from Jesus because here we are talking about Sabbath, reclaiming a place of rest, reclaiming a place of worship. It's good that you're here today. You claimed worship for yourself, it's good. 
Jesus described himself as the Lord of the Sabbath in Mark chapter, in Mark chapter two, which means he is the Lord of rest. That's what it means. He, he said this, he said, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and I'm humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Some of you don't have no rest for your souls. Did you notice, some of, some of the key to understanding this is in how you hear what he was saying. He says, take my yoke on you. You're all yoked. Now I know you're just sitting there going, I have no idea what that means, and that's okay, because I'm about to tell you. Are you ready? Because what a yoke was, it was a wooden cross piece that was fastened over the necks of two animals that were attached to a plow or a cart. A yoke would allow two animals to share a load and to pull together. That's what a yoke is. Yokes were used back in the, the, in the ancient Near East, primarily with like bulls and oxen to plow the fields and to pull the wagons so that the work could get done. And the animals yoked together needed to be really close in size and weight so that the cart could be pulled evenly. He's borrowing an example here because they would understand that they would watch animals get yoked every day. And some of you are absolutely yoked to the wrong thing. And the burden of it is, it is wearing you down. And Jesus says, I'm telling you, take my yoke. You're already yoked. Take mine. Because what you're gonna find is, there is an enormous difference in your life when we're hooked by the neck and I'm the one carrying the load. You will feel the difference immediately. All you have to do is connect to him. That's the yoke. And it's for you. I want to give a, a quick word here. Because that honestly, all of this is a challenge for those of you that follow Christ. He says, I'm the way. He's like, this is the way. This is the way. So let's follow him. Let's literally inject some Sabbath into our schedule. Let's put it back in. Let's reclaim this for ourselves. But for some of you, you came in here this morning because you're searching for something. Let's don't kid ourselves, you're searching. Uh, you, you know that your soul is at its wit's end. You've tried a lot of things for your life and you found out it doesn't work. There's something that I want you to know this morning is that the load that you were meant to take from the burdens of this life, which comes from the brokenness of the world that we all inhabit and frankly contribute to, has all been remedied in the grace and the goodness of Jesus for you. Every single drop of it has. And I love what Jerry Bridges said. He said, your worst days are never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. That is so true. He said, but your best days are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. And that's true too. See, when it comes to me, I came to Jesus when I was 11 years old. Uh, I got to the point where not only did I see that the world was broken, but I had made my contribution to the brokenness of the world. Like, I got it. And I just remember there was this moment where all that God was asking out of me was to see my need for him. All I needed was to see my need. And after that, the only thing that I could say was there was nothing that I could bring to the table to barter with God with. It was me literally coming like a beggar. And now after that, I don't know how else to come to God. I'm a beggar. You know, when Jesus started the Sermon on the Mount, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit. Uh, this is literally a person that is absolutely spiritually broke 
Blessed are you when you get there because he says, here's the thing, when you get there, you'll see me. You won't see me before because you'll never see your need. But when you get to the place of absolute brokenness, he says, then you'll see me. He says, so take my yoke because it's light. That sounds like a God that loves you, doesn't it? Because he does. We hope you have enjoyed the podcast. For more information about our church, visit www.woodridge.org.